Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Diffusion, the national science show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, our brand new member of the Diffusion team, Amy Bullen, will have a chat with Vaughan Gray from Engineers Without Borders about improving social conditions with the help of science. And I'll be presenting the first of a short series of features on space probes. What more can I say except my name's Whatmore, Lachlan Whatmore, and first up we have the news with Patrick Ruby. From New Scientist, evolutionary evidence for the little man syndrome. The old myth that shorter people are jealous of their taller neighbours might have been confirmed, especially when it comes to competition for a potential lover. Researchers from the universities of Groningen and Valencia made the discovery. Their study asked 549 men and women from Spain and the Netherlands to identify the characteristics of sexual rivals that they disliked the most. Men felt nervous about attractive, rich and strong competitors. They also felt less relaxed the shorter they were themselves. Women felt more jealous of the beauty and charm of their rivals, but they were less nervous if they were of average height. According to researchers, this makes evolutionary sense because taller men and average-height women are more successful at finding partners. There was, however, an interesting exception. Average-height women were more prone to jealousy than either tall or short women when faced with a physically stronger or socially superior competitor. The scientists theorised this was because average-height women feared they might lose a physical confrontation with a stronger woman, even though they themselves were the more likely favourites of men. The findings have been published in the Journal of Evolution and Human Behaviour. Shampoo could be the key to treating painful and swollen joints. A new strong but flexible gel could replace cartilage in people suffering from arthritis. The gel is made from polymers commonly found in shampoo. They are strong enough and flexible enough to be stretched to 10 times their original length. This is similar to natural cartilage. Eric Lin of the US National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gainsborough, the US, and his team of researchers are investigating the gel. They have discovered that two polymers within the gel give the cartilage-like properties. The polymers form strong integrated bonds regularly across the entire compound. If the gel is deformed, the bonds temporarily break and then reform once the tension subsides. This causes tens of thousands of tiny cracks within the material, which act as mini shock absorbers. The new gel could prove a cheaper alternative to laboratory-engineered natural tissue. However, the gel has not yet been inserted into human subjects, and is uncertain how successful it would be compared to natural tissue. Arthritis is a disease that causes painful swelling and stiffness in the joints, typically in the fingers and hands. It affects 46 million people in the US alone, and almost 4 million people in Australia. The findings were presented at the American Physical Society meeting in New Orleans, the US. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is all 
brain and body need Sex and drugs and rock and roll In ABC Online, moths with caterpillar memories. Caterpillars retain at least some of their behavioural memories when they become moths. Dr Douglas Blackiston from Georgetown University the US led the research. His team of scientists took hornworm caterpillar larvae and conditioned them to avoid the chemical ethyl acetate, which smells like pear juice. The conditioning involved giving the caterpillars mild electric shocks whenever they encountered the chemical. From this, the caterpillars learnt to avoid the odour whenever they smelt it. After the caterpillars metamorphed into moths, they were re-exposed to the chemical. The moth that had been exposed to the odour when they were three weeks old or older avoided the chemical. The moth that had been exposed at a younger age did not. The scientists hypothesised that at three weeks old, the caterpillars' brains had developed sufficiently to retain behavioural memories. These memory networks remained intact during the metamorphosis from caterpillar to butterfly. This research might explain certain insect behavioural traits, such as how insects remember to lay their eggs on plants they remember feeding on while they were larvae. It could be used in developing future pest control techniques. Science can give us knowledge and help us understand the world. But how can science help improve social conditions? Amy Bullen explores this through talking to Vaughan Gray from Engineers Without Borders on what science can and needs to do in response to housing concerns in Indigenous Australia. At a time when Indigenous issues are getting a lot of discussion, I thought it would be opportune to ask how science can be used to support Indigenous communities. I'm here with Vaughan Gray, who is a representative from Engineers Without Borders, an organisation I have volunteered with, to discuss how engineering scientists can use their skills and knowledge to help out. First off, welcome Vaughan. Thank you very much, Amy. One of the programs Engineers Without Borders are running is a housing project in the Dampier Peninsula. Can you give me a bit of info about that? We're running a housing project in conjunction with the Kimberley Aboriginal Enterprise Corporation. It was essentially a collective of local Indigenous tradespeople in the Broome and the West Kimberley area. And we're looking to identify with them methods of making housing more appropriate and more affordable and accessible to the communities in the West Kimberley and specifically on the Dampier Peninsula. The aim is to reduce the cost of housing and to incorporate more of the community involvement actually in the construction of housing at the same time. So this essentially makes uh, housing more accessible to the communities and also at the same time will help stimulate employment. While we're doing that, we're also, in terms of making the housing more appropriate to the communities, we're looking to spend time with architecture and actually look at developing housing, the layout of the housing, and how we associate cooking areas and living areas into developing houses that are actually appropriate for the communities to be living in, the types of families that are living on the peninsula. Okay, so it's not just science, it's also interacting with the community using that. In any of these situations when we're applying science, you're not, you can't apply science by itself. You have to relate it to the humanities. You have to relate it to actual people on the ground and it's the only way for science to actually function in society. Right. What kind of people do the volunteering for this project? At the moment on this project, we've got professional 
engineers, we've got student engineers, we have professional architects and we have student architects as well as people around the edges from all over the shop helping out with the general organisation and the general undertaking of the project. But essentially it's our student architects and our student engineers who are doing the real groundwork or doing the real research into this project along with the communities. So they're getting experience in how to do things at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great chance for them to actually apply the technical skills that they're gaining at university into a real-life situation that will actually benefit other people. About how much time do they spend volunteering? It really depends. Some people are spending a fair bit of time on there, mainly because these will actually become assessment pieces for their university work. Right, yep. So they're actually spending quite a fair bit of time putting a significant amount of work into this and will actually end up being an engineering dissertation. Wow. I'm wondering whether it takes longer to plan the building than it does to actually construct the houses in the end. Oh, absolutely it does. And that's something that we're very conscious of doing is taking the time to actually do the planning properly in this project. Many projects before, or many projects that are in the area have had a very brief planning period somebody's come up with a good idea but the planning period in how to actually implement it and the thoroughness into that planning of spending time with the communities and making sure it's appropriate and adaptable and fits in with the skills and the training that the communities have and are available hasn't always been done so what we're doing is we're going back and we're spending a significant amount of time planning which will hopefully end up with a small amount of time in construction but making sure that we're constructing the right things when we actually do get to construction. Does it involve taking into account sustainability? That's um, certainly one of the major emphases of this project, is that we're looking to make these houses appropriate. And and saying appropriate, we want them to be sustainable for the community to use. We want them to be appropriate to the situations that the community is in, so the community has, for instance, extended families of 20 to 30 people living in these houses, rather than a tight, close-knit family of five to people as more common in large Australian cities. Designing these houses so that they fit these situations is all part of the context of these projects. I'm wondering if when you do the housing, you build a certain amount of houses and then you're going to have to leave to do another project? Well, we're not actually going to be physically building houses ourselves, Mm, per se. The idea of this project is for us to help stimulate the communities in the, in the area to be building their own houses and to make housing accessible to these communities. So when you mentioned sustainability before, the ideal aim is that we'll get to a point where we are no longer involved at all in the building of these houses and that the communities and the local enterprise in the region will sustainably carry on the practice of building these houses without any additional external input from people like Engineers Without Borders. The flip side of that is that we will always be around. We're committing long-term to all the projects we're running in remote Australia, right? particularly for further technical advice when people have questions, things like that come up. So there hopefully won't be an issue when it comes to a point where we turn around and, and leave as such. Hopefully that will be a natural progression of the project that the communities take over ownership of construction of these houses themselves but we'll always be there as a fallback in case they need some assistance. Okay, so the training for these local communities, what exactly does that involve? At the moment, that's something that we're still going through the motions of working out, and I think this is going to take quite a substantial amount of time. 
but we will be looking at what skills are available in the communities. There is actually a lot of training that goes on with the communities in the West Kimberley area through providers such as TAFE. Also, there are a lot of skilled people living in the area who have moved into the area, but we also think that there's a good opportunity to undertake training and target it specifically at the housing sector so that the local communities can get involved in housing and involved in job creation in this housing through education. It sounds like you've been doing some really great stuff there. Thank you. It's very early days for us at this stage. We've got 12 months to go at least on the research side before we even consider getting to the point of housing right. or construction of housing. But it's all starting to progress. Okay, well, thank you for giving me my time here. We appreciate it. <laughs> no problems at all, Amy. That was Amy Bullen interviewing Vaughan Gray from Engineers Without Borders about one of the ways in which engineers can help out Indigenous communities. Have you ever thought that a machine might have a soul? Oh, I know this is a science show and the concept of a soul isn't exactly scientific. But just departing from that for a moment, have you ever known a machine that might be called faithful as opposed to just reliable? Maybe a car that never let you down or a trusty typewriter or even just a childhood toy that still gives you pleasure after all these years. I myself firmly believe that musical instruments have souls. I mean, they must have if they fill our own souls with such joy. Well, maybe not bagpipes, but most musical instruments. When humans began to understand the vastness of space, they soon realised that manned exploration of the heavens would be much more costly and dangerous than unmanned exploration. Manned spaceflight requires large spacecraft, life support systems, oxygen, a big bag of lollies for Martian kids, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Unmanned spacecraft don't need all that. So machines have performed the bulk of human space exploration and in two instalments I'd like to take a little time to talk about three of my favourite space probes. They are, in order of launching, Lunar 1, Voyager 1 and Galileo. Last year we at Diffusion commemorated the 50th anniversary of the launching of Sputnik, the first human-made object intentionally launched into space. That was in 1957. Just two years later, the USSR launched Luna 1, which looked vaguely similar to Sputnik, being a shiny metal sphere with aerials and instruments protruding from it. It was launched from Baikonur Cosmodrome on January 1st, 1959, aboard a Vostok booster. 
It weighed 361.3 kilos and carried many more instruments than its predecessor, including a tracking transmitter, a telemetry system, a magnetometer, a Geiger counter, a scintillation counter and a micrometeorite detector. In yet another stunning first for Soviet space exploration, Luna 1 became the first human-made object to reach heliocentric orbit, which means that it was orbiting the Sun and not the Earth, having achieved escape velocity from the Earth's gravitational pull. It made several very interesting discoveries, including the first direct measurements of the solar wind, the detection of high-energy particles in the outer Van Allen belt, and the fact that the Moon doesn't have a detectable magnetic field. Its only failure was to miss its final destination, the Moon, into which it was programmed to crash, delivering two small Soviet flags as it did so. There was a malfunction on the ground, which led to an error in the booster's burn time, and Luna 1 missed the Moon. So it's still out there, orbiting the Sun somewhere between Earth and Mars, having been dubbed a new planet by its proud and perhaps overly romantic engineers. Well, God forbid that a bunch of godless commies get the upper hand over the United States. The early Soviet successes stung America into action and the space race literally rocketed into full swing. Along with manned spaceflight, including the face-saving Apollo moonshots, unmanned deep space exploration proceeded apace. On the 5th of September 1977, Voyager 1, designed to visit the outer solar system and then move on to interstellar space, was hoisted aloft on a Titan III Centaur booster. Its sister craft, Voyager 2, had been launched three weeks earlier, but Voyager 1 was sent on a faster trajectory towards Jupiter and Saturn. It arrived in the Jovian neighbourhood in January 1979 and began taking photographs, sending the pictures electronically back to Earth because there obviously wasn't anyone around to take a roll of film out of its cameras. One of its discoveries was that of volcanic activity on the Jovian moon Io. From Jupiter, the plucky little space probe took advantage of Jupiter's gravity to slingshot itself around the giant planet and head towards Saturn, arriving in the Saturnian neighbourhood in November 1980, coming to within 124,000 kilometres of the ringed gas giant on the 12th. There it studied the complexity of Saturn's rings and studied the atmospheres of both Saturn and its moon Titan. Voyager 1's ground controllers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, decided to send the probe to Titan instead of onto Uranus and then Neptune because Titan had a thick atmosphere they wanted to investigate. Once that was done, Voyager 1's exploration of our own solar system was finished and using Titan's gravity to again accelerate, it dropped out of the plane of rotation of most of the planets and began heading towards the edge of the solar system known as the heliopause. Exactly where Voyager 1 is now is a matter of debate. The heliopause is where the solar wind from our own sun collides with the interstellar medium, which is a hydrogen and helium gas which permeates the Milky Way. The best way for a space probe to find out where it is is to use a solar wind detector. However, Voyager 1's solar wind detector stopped functioning in 1990, so it can't detect the end of the solar wind and thus the beginning of the interstellar medium. It's fairly certain that the probe has reached the termination shock, which is a point where the solar wind slows down to subsonic speeds. As of the 1st of December 2007, Voyager 1 was 15.671 teramitres or 15,671,000,000 kilometres from Earth, or in other words, 0.0016 light years away. Its speed is 17.2 kilometres per second relative to the Sun, 
and it is still operational, singing, sending signals back to Earth from its onboard instruments that are still working. These signals now take over 14 hours to reach the various deep space tracking stations around the world, including our own at Tidbinbilla. Perhaps the coolest thing about Voyager 1 is the fact that it contains a greeting card for anyone out there who might stumble across it. Both Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 contain a golden phonograph record with images and recordings of life on Earth. For details on these golden records, I would refer you to the internet. Stay tuned. In the weeks to come, I'm going to talk about the meanest, toughest and perhaps the most accomplished space probe of all time, Galileo. I'm also going to have a chat with a mate of mine who just happens to be an engineer at various Australian tracking stations. See you then. And finally from Fizzorg, laser-guided robots for the handicapped. A new robot called LE has been designed to help people with degenerative disorders become more independent. The robot looks similar to a stereotypical sci-fi character, with lenses for eyes, a slender frame body, and a voice that calls out familiar catchphrases like Bob's your uncle when it performs tasks. The robot was designed by Charlie Kemp, the director of Georgia Tech Center for Healthcare Robotics in the US. Its current basic function is to fetch objects. A person can point at an object he or she wants with a handheld laser. LE detects the laser, makes a beeping noise when it detects it, and travels over to the object. It then picks it up with a mechanical arm. To retrieve the object, the user can point the laser at their own feet, and the robot will return, look for the user's face, and then hand over the object to them. The robot is successful 90% of the time. It works by using several sensors lasers and cameras to guide it to an object and then judge what grip is needed to pick the object up. It moves along on three wheels and is powered by a single Mac Mini. Unfortunately it can only pick up objects around 1.2 pounds in weight. That's about half a kilogram. Also the creators have not yet disclosed its cost, but it is hoped that it could become cheaper than service dogs or monkeys. It is being trialled with patients with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, a rare progressive degenerative motor neuron disease, later this year.
And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us with feedback, comments, suggestions, wild, passionate praise, proposals of marriage, that sort of thing, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program were Patrick Ruby, Amy Bullen, and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by me, Lachlan Watmore, in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We are broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. So join us next week inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering on Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion.